Genesis 37, verses 12 to 28. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children. 
and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. I, I'm so glad to be with you at this outdoor service. Don't you love outdoor services? Yeah, very excited to be out here. What a beautiful day. I'm also excited to be celebrating what we're celebrating. First of all, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Thank you so much for all that you do. Really appreciate you. But also very excited to be celebrating the 40th anniversary of this church. In fact, let me ask you to do something. If you're here and you have every sticker on, would you just stand for a second? If you're here and you have all the stickers, would you stand? Can we applaud for these people? Thank you so much for all that you've done. There'll be a time at the end where we will honor you more fully. But also I wanna take just a moment to say uh, to Jim and Barb how appreciative, not just the church is, but how appreciative I am. You know, church planting is something I'm very passionate about, and to see what God has done with what was just a dream for you guys in the beginning to now is an amazing thing. Can we celebrate the colleges real quick? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. From one hero of the faith to another, we're going to be talking about Joseph this morning from the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible uh, or your phone, we're going to be talking about a story that begins in Genesis chapter 37 and really doesn't end until chapter 50 of Genesis. So I'm going to be talking about the whole story, but if you want to be leafing through the Bible, scrolling through, tracking with me, you're going to want to begin in Genesis 37 and just kind of keep moving forward. And I have three points uh, for us to help us navigate as we look at continuing our sermon series, One Story, One Hero, looking at how the Bible is one big story about Jesus. Three points, and they go like this. The first point is just a recap of the story. I want to make sure you know the story, so a quick recap. And then the second and third points are the usual way we read this story, and then the better way of reading this story. Okay, so quick recap, then the usual way of reading it, and the better way of reading it. Let me do a quick recap of the story of Joseph. And if you wish I were singing the story to you, uh, you should know there is a musical about it. So go check it out, although I regret to tell you it was not written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. So it's, there's no hip-hop in it. It's Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's a little less interesting, but you can check that out. But here's the story of Joseph. I don't want to assume you know it. Joseph was born into a fractured family. His father, Jacob, had two wives. That is something the Bible tells us is not good and should not happen, but Jacob did it anyway. His two wives were sisters, Leah 
and Rachel. And, and Leah was very unattractive, the Bible says. Rachel was beautiful. Leah was the older sister. Rachel was the younger sister. Leah gave Jacob many children. She had a lot of sons. Rachel, at least at the time Joseph was born, was only, he only had one child. That was Joseph. So there's a lot of rivalry. Older sister against younger unattractive sister against attractive sister, sister with a lot of children, and sister with only one child. Joseph is born as the favorite child because he's born to the wife that Jacob actually loved. And Joseph either was unaware of this or was very aware of it, and he kind of wore it on his sleeve. His father gave him this beautiful mini-colored coat that he liked to wear around his brothers. And he liked to talk about the dreams that he had had. And all the dreams ended up with his brothers bowing down to him. Not so subtle, if you ask me. His brothers didn't like this, they got jealous. And so one day when Joseph went out to visit them while they were working in a field, they conspired to murder Joseph. They were gonna kill him to get rid of him. They actually called him the dreamer. They, they hated him. Then one brother just says that instead of killing him, they should just do something a little less violent and throw him into an old dried out well, or what the Bible calls the pit. And so they throw him in there. And then in this crazy verse in the story, just to show you how much his brothers hated him, they sat down to eat lunch. So they're eating lunch. Joseph is down in the hole. And about that time, some slave traders come by and their brothers say, hey, you know, if we kill Joseph, we don't make any money off of it. So instead of killing him, let's sell him into slavery. And so they sell him for 20 shekels of silver. And Joseph is eventually taken by the slavers to Egypt where he's sold to a man named Potiphar. He works for Potiphar and he's really good at his job. The Bible says that the Lord blesses him in all that he does. And so pretty soon he becomes Potiphar's right-hand man. He runs the entire household. The Bible says Joseph was so good at this job that the only thing Potiphar worried about was what he was going to eat. Kind of like if you asked dad on Father's Day, what do you care about? He probably only mentioned the food he would like to eat today. That's Potiphar's life. All he worries about is what he's going to eat. Potiphar's wife, however, decides that she thinks Joseph is very handsome and she maneuvers to try to get him into a romantic relationship with her. And when Joseph resists, she gets frustrated and finally falsely accuses him of assaulting her when she makes a final play and he rejects her. As a result, Joseph is thrown into prison for uh, an attempted sexual assault where he languishes for a long time. While he's there, a couple of other guys that Joseph is in charge of, because again, the Lord's favor was on Joseph's life, so even in jail, he becomes kind of the guy who runs the jail. And two guys that are in the jail with him, Pharaoh's former cupbearer and baker, have dreams. And the dreams are causing them some angst because they don't know what they mean. And so Joseph offers to explain the dreams because after all, he knows that God has all the wisdom and God will help them. And so he interprets the dreams to them. He tells the baker, Pharaoh is actually bad news for you. Pharaoh is going to hang you in three days. And to the cupbearer, he says in three days, you will be let out and you will work for Pharaoh again. 
Both of those things come true. And Joseph only has one request to the cupbearer. He says, hey, when you're with Pharaoh again, remember me because I'm in jail and I didn't do anything wrong. Bring me with you when you go to Pharaoh. But the cupbearer forgets. And in fact, Joseph will spend two more years in prison. And it isn't until Pharaoh begins to have dreams that are upsetting him that the cupbearer remembers that he knew a guy back in prison who could interpret dreams. So Pharaoh sends for Joseph. He cleans him up and shaves him and brings him in front of him and says, here are the dreams I'm having. And Joseph says, I can tell you what those dreams mean. There are seven years of plenty coming in which Egypt is going to have a lot of food. And then after that, there are going to be seven years of famine and you're not going to have any food. And so what God is telling you is during the years of plenty, you need to put food away so that during the famine, you'll be able to feed everyone. Pharaoh is so impressed that he not only gets Joseph out of prison, but he puts him in charge of the famine relief program. So for seven years, Joseph is in charge of storing up food. And then for the next seven, he's in charge of delegating it. During this time, Joseph's brothers are starving back home with their dad. So the dad sends them to Egypt to go get food. And over the course of their time there, they begin to realize Joseph reveals that it is their brother they sold into slavery that they are now begging for, for, for food. And as a result, eventually some other things happen. We, we get to what we read in chapter 45 where Joseph forgives them and tells them, hey, all that happened was really God working to make sure that you and my family, our family, would have food during famine and that we would keep moving forward in uncovering and discovering the promise that God has for us. It's an amazing, amazing story. That's why they turned it in to a musical. It is a story of, of overcoming. It is a story of, of wrongful suffering. It is a story of triumph. An amazing, amazing story. That's the recap for you. Again, you can read about it in Genesis 37 through 50. But let me get to the way we usually read this story. This is my second point. Usually when we read this story or when this story is taught, the way it is taught is that Joseph is an example to us of how we ought to live in this world. That Joseph is an example to us of what it means to follow God, of what it means to live a life of faith, of what it means to suffer well, to, to overcome. That Joseph is a story of having faith in God even in the pit. Joseph has a story of how those who have faith in God will not be let down. When we read this story, we tend to read ourselves into the part of Joseph. But I actually think that's a terrible way to read this story. And, and I don't mean, by the way, a terrible way as in shame on you if that's how you've read it. You've done it and, and I've done it too. I mean it's a terrible way and that if you read this story that way, it will ultimately crush you. It will not help you. It will not be good for you. Let, let me show you this in four different ways. The first thing you need to understand about Joseph is that he belongs to a special family that has a special promise from God. Joseph is not just random guy. He's not Israelite number 103. He's not just a regular Christian. 
Joseph is a descendant of a man named Abraham. And God made a promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. And God told Abraham, I am going to make a great family from you. And through that family, I am going to bless all the nations of the world. In fact, he tells Abraham, your family, your descendants will be incredibly numerous, more than the stars in the sky. You're going to have a huge family. And actually, the first five books of the Bible are in many ways God's fulfillment of that promise. And that means that as you're reading the first five books of the Bible, you know that God has made this promise. And like any good story, the writer continues to put in front of God's people, his special family, all these challenges and obstacles to overcome. And you're left as a reader going, how is God going to keep his promise in the midst of this challenge? How is God's promise going to overcome this obstacle? You remember last week we talked about Abraham and, and Isaac and how God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And as you read that story, you think, what, what was Abraham thinking as he walked up the mountain? But actually in a New Testament book, the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us that here's what Abraham was thinking, that God had made a promise and that there was no way that that promise could be kept if Isaac died. So the writer of Hebrews says Abraham went up the mountain believing that even if he killed Isaac, God would raise Isaac from the dead. Because after all, they were a special family with a special promise. And in a similar way, Joseph belongs to the family of Abraham. So that Joseph knows that everything God is doing is aimed at keeping promise. So that everything that Joseph endures and overcomes, everything that he experiences is aimed at the fulfillment of this promise. In fact, the famine will come. And only because Joseph is there and only because Joseph belongs to this family will Abraham's family make it through the famine. And I say to say this, we are not like Joseph people who have this special promise from God. Now, I don't mean God doesn't make us promises in the Bible. He does. You might say, but Zach, in the book of Romans, it says that, that all things work to good for those who love the Lord, and they certainly do eventually. The Bible is a story that ends in a day in which we will live with God forever. And the new heavens and the new earth, the ending will be good for us. But there is actually no promise that our lives will work out exactly the way we want them to. Some people will suffer, and that will be the end of their story. Some people will get sick and pass away prematurely. Some families will never reconcile. Some addictions will never be overcome. When we extrapolate out from this story that, hey, things worked out for Joseph, therefore, things will work out for me, we are writing a check that God has not promised to cash. We are making promises to people on God's behalf that we cannot make. And ultimately will result in bitterness towards God because didn't God promise me that life would work out for me well. This is a special man from a special family with a special promise. 
There's a second reason why we shouldn't read ourselves as Joseph, and that is that in the story of Joseph, we have the benefit of hindsight. We have a narrator. We have the whole story. So we can look back from Genesis 50 and say, you know, it was hard for Joseph, but in the end, it was worth it. I mean, everything that he went through, it worked out. He gets to be the prince of Egypt. This is like when you go to work for your company in your 20s and they work you 90 hours a week and and you think you're going to die, but it's okay because you get the corner office. In the end, you make partner. In the end, it's worth it. So we read the story of Joseph. We say, everything that happened, happened for a reason. But there's a danger in that. And it is again that we would look at our own lives or the lives of other people and say, everything that you've been through, you've been through for a reason. Everything you've been through, God will ultimately use to work to some benefit in this life. In fact, one form this takes is we will say to someone who's experienced something traumatic, you went through this so that God could use you in this way later. But there's a danger in that. One is that when we extrapolate that out into our lives, we make light of the suffering of particular people. The truth is that many of us would say, I I would rather just not have the suffering. When we say to someone who's been hurt, it's good that you've been hurt because now you can teach a class to hurting people. We make them not a person, but a means to an end, a commodity. That God doesn't care about them. God cares about those he wants to bless through them. But the other thing is we are promising them hindsight that they don't have and we don't have and we don't know. There are some people here who could testify that the marriage will not be put back together. The rebellious child will never repent The addiction will never be overcome. The relationship will never be healed. This situation works out, but not every situation does. In fact, if you're here and you're suffering, I want you to know that the Bible has many stories where the person suffering is lamenting and mourning and crying out to God, why is this happening to me? There is senseless meaningless violence in the Bible that we are meant to mourn, not to explain, not to connect the dots. In just a few generations, the Israelites will be in slavery for 400 years. Generations of Israelites will live and die as slaves. They will never be connected. And I say that to say that Christians, we can do a lot of violence if we rush into those who are suffering and say to them, just wait and see how God will connect the dots. Instead, we should sit with them and mourn with them and lament with them and suffer alongside them. This world is a difficult place and it is full of seemingly meaningless suffering. The third reason why we have to be careful not to read the story this way is because the evil in this story is never actually dealt with. There's no, Joseph's brothers are never punished. 
They sell their brother into slavery. They lie about him being killed by a wild animal. They will live with that lie for the rest of their lives until they meet Joseph. They never, ever get justice. Now that is because, again, they belong to the special family of God. God is saving them in spite of themselves. But if you're a sufferer here this morning, I want you to know that that justice matters to God. That those who do wrong will face the judgment of God. That this story is not meant to be a template of how we think about those who do evil. And then the fourth reason we have to be careful not to read ourselves into the part of Joseph is because Joseph in this story is innocent. When you read the story, you're struck by the evil of everyone around Joseph, but you're also struck by the innocence of Joseph. He goes through a number of difficulties and that's putting it mildly. And we never get a passage where he responds in anger or bitterness or hatred. He never has a crisis of faith in which he wonders, God, where are you? What are you doing? He never cuts a corner. He never maneuvers for himself. In this story, Joseph is innocent. And as much as we'd like to think that in the suffering of our lives, you and I are completely innocent, that is seldom the case. We may be victims, to be sure, Others may hurt us in ways we don't deserve, absolutely. But if we're honest about our lives, many of the difficult circumstances we find ourselves in are not simply done to us, but also done by us. And so if we read ourselves into the part of Joseph, we end up with a view of God and a view of ourselves that sounds a little bit like this. God has a special plan for my life Everything will work out just the way I want it. So therefore I should ignore all those who hurt me and do evil to me and just rest in the fact of my absolute and complete innocence. And not only does that not correspond with reality, my fear is, and maybe you feel this way, that that view will not sustain you in life. Instead, my guess is that here this morning, we have people in the crowd who are saying, where is my special plan? When are the dots going to connect for me? How long have those who have hurt me and done evil to me going to go unpunished? What am I supposed to do if I don't feel innocent? Now, the usual way of reading this story will not help us. So that brings me to my third point, which is there's a better way to read this story. And the better way to read it is not to read yourself into the part of Joseph, but rather to see that there are characters in this story who are much more like us than him. And those characters are Joseph's brothers. Think about the brothers in this story. In their anger and jealousy, they make decisions that are destructive that they will have to live with for the rest of their lives. Does that sound familiar to you? Because of those decisions, they will lie about who they really are and live in shame, even with those who are closest to them for the rest of their lives. Does 
that sound familiar to you? Because of what they've done, they will ultimately be confronted by someone who has every right to hate them and every right to wish evil upon them and every right to judge them. Have you experienced that? Are you afraid of experiencing that? But if you think about the brothers in this story, the story couldn't go better for them. Even though in their anger and their jealousy, they do evil. Even though they lie and cheat and cover up their evil and live in shame, even though they come face to face with the one they've sinned against and he has the absolute power to destroy them. Instead, he forgives them. You see, the story of Joseph is a story that, that invites us to believe that even though we have done wrong, even though we live in shame and in a lack of honesty about who we really are, even with those close to us, even though we dread running into a person or people or even standing before a God who knows our sin and can absolutely judge us, that we might be forgiven. And the way you get there, friends, is not only by reading yourself into the part of Joseph's brothers, but by reading Jesus Christ into the part of Joseph. Because after all, Jesus was a man born into a fractured world. Jesus was a man whose beauty brought out in our world jealousy and anger. Jesus is a man whose brothers sold him, whose brothers threw him into the pit of death. Jesus is a man who suffered although he was innocent. Jesus is a man who suffered at the hands of his brothers, dying, raising as a prince of heaven. And Jesus Christ is a man who, when confronted by the evil of his brothers, chose not to judge and destroy, but rather to forgive. The Christian life is not about you having superhuman faith, believing that if God could just connect all the dots for you, you would ignore evil and maintain your innocence. The Christian life is not about you being heroic like Joseph. The Christian life is falling at the feet of the Prince of Heaven and saying, you have every right to destroy me. I have lied about you. I have rebelled against you. I have betrayed you. I have ignored you. The Christian life is about sitting at the feet of Jesus and expecting judgment, but instead, instead, Hearing in the words of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. In our evil, we nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. But in God's goodness, he was taking that evil moment and doing the greatest thing that has ever been done. Your promise, my promise, our promise is not that if we are heroic, 
we will be taken care of. Our promise is that God has sent a hero who has lived for us and died for us and risen in order to forgive us. Do not let the story of Joseph crush you. Instead, let it embolden you. The one person in the whole universe who can rightly judge you offers you grace instead. In fact, let me read to you the way this story ends in the Jesus Storybook Bible. I hope you're doing the challenge with us, but here is what Sally Lloyd-Jones says. One day, God would send another prince, a young prince whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father. His brothers would hate him and want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good, to forgive the sins of the whole world. Here is the good news of the gospel. You do not have to be heroic for God to love you. There is one who's heroic, and he loves you, and he forgives you. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for the truth of the gospel that while every other religion will tell us we must be heroic, we must keep the rules, obey, surrender, achieve, you sent Jesus Christ in our place to do all of those things on our behalf. Forgive us of making ourselves the hero in our own stories and lead us, Holy Spirit, we pray, to the much greater truth of being a small character in the heroic story of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.